in them. So this morning, I would once again invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, to John chapter 16. And if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, I did not write the page number down again. Uh, so maybe somebody can holler out that page number whenever you find it, if you want to look that up. John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. And God's inspired and an errant word reads, A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And some of his disciples said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this? That I said, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that the child has been born into the world. And therefore, you too have grief now, but you will see, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. And truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. Father, I ask a blessing upon the reading of your words. Now may the power of your Holy Spirit illuminate this text for us. Illuminate and open our hearts and our minds uh, that we would hear from you. Uh, Father, that you would speak to us this morning uh, as you examine our hearts and our minds. And, and you know what each one of us needs this morning. Father, uh, I, I have no idea. Uh, what each one needs this morning, Lord. And, and I come before you believing in the power of the Holy Spirit, believing in your spirit that you want what's best for each one of us. And in that I do rest assured. And Father, I do pray uh, that as we uh, spend the next half hour or so looking into this text, a text that uh, seems more like a riddle than anything else, and yet we can see the confusion uh, within the minds of the disciples. And Father, may that confusion not rest upon us, but may we too uh, have clarity of, uh, of what your meaning was here. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. From grief to joy. Seems like a pretty obvious title, does it not? From grief to joy. Now, the death of Jesus was no accident. It was on purpose and it was for a purpose. We must understand this. And we must accept that this was the plan from the very beginning. Some maintain that the execution of Jesus was just logical, foreseeable outcome of anyone who lived and spoke out against the injustices of the Roman government. They would also see the death of Jesus through the hands of a religious authority as predictable response for those in charge to remain in the position of power. This view is in danger of denying the purposeful plan of God for the redemption of the world. 
In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus told His disciples, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And in Luke, He said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chiefs and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And a little later in Luke chapter 22, Jesus also says this, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. And this is certainly how the disciples understood it after the fact. And in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's great sermon there at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2 verses 23 and 24, as Peter was preaching this sermon, he said this, uh, this man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. A couple chapters later, when Peter and John find themselves, find themselves in prison or before the courts for preaching the gospel... They had this to say in John chapter or in Acts chapter 4, verse 20, 25, citing there from the Old Testament, they asked the question, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? And they answer that question. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against Christ. For truly this city where they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Sometimes we can become so fixated upon the method or upon yeah the, the method of execution, the method used to put an end to the life of Jesus, that we uh, fail to see the bigger application or the bigger uh, outcome of that. And as I continue to build where I'm going here this morning, in a book that was written uh, by Adrian Goldsworthy, uh, titled The Pax Romana. And, and in this book, uh, he had this to say about crucifixion specifically as a form of capital punishment that the Roman government was quite fond of using. He said this, and I quote, It was a useful illustration of the brutality that maintained the control of the providences, control of the people. Savage flogging followed by death by crucifixion in most cases, a longer, even more painful experience when the victims were not killed quickly, having their legs broken, but left to die slowly. It was a common form of punishment in many thousands. That's what I want you to hear. And many thousands perished in this way. It was not a unique way or unique form of execution. And then he continues speaking of Jesus' crucifixion. The willingness of the detachment who carried out the execution to sit and gamble while three men died slow deaths shows how casual and commonplace such violence was, end quote. And it just gives us a sense of, for us, I mean, what it seems like such an impossible and such a unique and such a horrific and horrifying way of ending a life, and it indeed is. But for this particular time, in this particular place, by the Roman authorities, 
uh, to bring about the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, was used through this type of violence, we must understand that the uniqueness of the crucifixion of Jesus was not unique at all. Paul writing in Galatians chapter 3, referring back to Deuteronomy, that says that anyone who hangs upon a tree is cursed. He says this to the church there at Galatia. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? <laughs> Having become a curse for us. For it is written, curses anyone or everyone who hangs on a tree. And so this very idea that people uh, thought of a person being hung on a tree as, as cursed, Paul is saying, no, this is actually the way that Jesus brought about redemption, brought about hope into the world. And Paul said that we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks it's foolishness. I mean, think about that. The idea that the crucified, that anyone who's crucified could, by that act, by that process, could bring about redemption is ludicrous, is it not? It would certainly be a stumbling block for the Jewish people who their Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament, but their Torah, their Bible, says that anyone who hangs upon a tree is cursed. And of course, Greeks, of course, us who are well-educated and us who are well-read and us who know better, know the ridiculousness. It was really interesting. Incidentally, it had nothing to do with, with when I'm even preaching. Well, it had something to do with preaching on today, but it wasn't anything that I was searching for. But nonetheless, I came to this particular thread, and they were talking about this very idea. And they were, and some of those who were questioning and challenging this idea that we as Christians believe that by the death, sorry, that by the death of Jesus, that that would actually bring about redemption, the ludicrousness, who can possibly, that has any intelligence at all, believe such a thing? Believe such a thing. And, and when you think about that, that is very, very true, is it not? But, but, but the disciples here, as, as we think about the grief that they're experiencing and that Jesus is letting them know, this is the grief you are going to have. You see, the disciples of Jesus, they were fully invested. They gave up their jobs as fishermen. They gave up their jobs as accountants. They gave up their jobs as physicians. They gave up all. And I don't think it's too great a stretch to also assume the disciples gave up relationships. They lost friends. They lost family members. They lost reputation. And they certainly lost their credibility. Did they not? And so as they think about Jesus saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave you. You're here all on your own. And they're saying, wait a minute. I invested three years of my life and this is the outcome? I invested three years of my life. I gave up my job. I gave up my business. I lost relationships. And now you're going to tell me you're going to check out? You're going to throw in the towel? You're going to give up? That, that's the grief that they're experiencing here as they're starting to see. See, I'm not, <clears throat> not going to take the time to go there, but this is certainly not, and you, you know this, this is certainly not the first time that Jesus tried to tell them that for a little while I am with you, and then I go. Well, after this particular night and after a couple hours of Jesus lecturing them, we only have a portion of what I'm sure he said that particular night on that Thursday night. Uh, but they finally were getting the idea. You know, guys, I think he might be serious. I think he's going to be leaving us. And so they thought about that. It must have crossed their mind. You mean I gave up all for this? But if, 
But see, this is the but, right? But if Jesus did not stay dead, if that investment actually paid off, you wouldn't look so foolish, would you? If Jesus actually rises from that grave and comes back again, well, this changes everything. This changes everything. And so with that, we want to get into just a little bit of this idea, this riddle, which we're not going to spend a lot of time on this riddle here that Jesus seems to be putting before them here this morning. But I do want you to notice in verse 16 the prophecy that Jesus is proclaiming. Once again, he is prophesying his coming death. But in the prophecy, he's not just prophesying his death, but he's also prophesying his resurrection, if they understood it in the moment or not. And as Jesus says, in a little while, you will no longer see me. Now, this is quite obviously, uh, he's referring to his death. And then you will see me again. Well, he's quite obviously referring to his resurrection. And some went to Austin. I might just add, stop right here for a moment, put a little footnote in here for us here today, uh, and for where we find ourselves at in this, this current, this current time. in, in 2021, uh, someone wanted to say, and, and, and it is interesting reading a bunch of commentaries and, and hearing the argument uh, over people that are way smarter than I, differing on this idea. But but I, I would disagree with, with quite a few who would want to say, not that many of them, but who would want to say that what Jesus is referring to here is, is his second, the second advent. When Jesus returns once again in the, in the parousia, when he comes back, right? And when he comes back that second time, some, someone called call it the rapture, which I certainly think the rapture, but as we're raptured simultaneously as he returns, right? And so that's what some want to say. That that's what Jesus is referring to. But you take the context of this particular evening, and I cannot go along with that, though, however, that would be true. We do not see Jesus now. But we can take comfort in these same words here this morning by knowing that we will. We will see him for the first time versus just experiencing him. That time is also coming. But for our context here today, and depending on the study Bible that you have, it, it may be referring to what I just mentioned. That's on the second coming. But I, but I sincerely believe that would be an incorrect interpretation. He is certainly speaking of his crucifixion and of his resurrection here. Because here the disciples are, 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 are there in a few hours, he's going to be let off. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to go before the judges. He's going to go before the trials. He's going to disappear from their sight. And then he's going to die. And then he's going to bury, be buried in that tomb. The tomb is sealed off with a stone not to be seen again. Certainly that is what Jesus is referring to here this morning. But he's saying, guys, it's not going to end that way. You will see me again. That they couldn't quite understand, but they will get there. And in John, the seventh chapter, we see that Jesus said this to the Jews. And in John chapter 13, we say that Jesus also said this to his disciples. So again, this is, this is nothing new. Jesus has been saying this all along, but now it seems like the reality of it is setting in for his disciples and followers here. And then, you know, second, I want you to notice the, the confusion of verses 17 and 18. Yeah, I mean, obviously you can understand, right? I mean, how could they not be confused? I mean, some of his disciples said to one another, what is this thing he's telling us? A little bit later they're saying, what is this he says to us? A little bit they're saying, 
We don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> right? And so this is the confusion that the disciples must have. What do you mean? You're going to leave, and then all of a sudden you're going to show up again? What in the world are you talking about? So we can certainly understand the confusion. And, and again, I want you to want, want to see that these guys thought they had it all figured out. And again, I want to kind of come across the hermeneutical bridge to us here today. And I want us to also understand that there's times in our life, right? I mean, how can we not make an application here? There's times in our life where we think we've got it all figured out. Our ducks are in a row, if you will. We've got our future planned. We've got our retirement planned. we got it all mapped out. Some of you who are responsible have it all mapped out and have and know exactly what's, what, what you're going to be doing and, and how you're going to spend the days of your life. And then all of a sudden, you lose a job. All of a sudden, health issue comes in. All of a sudden, fill in the blank, comes and throws a monkey wrench, if you will, or throws a stick into the spoke of your bicycle tire, right? And all of a sudden, the whole your whole life takes on a different shape and confusion sets in. Jesus, this wasn't the plan. This is not what I planned for. This is not what I signed up for. I signed up for the good life, right? I mean, isn't that what we all sign up for? Isn't that what we all want? Well, of course it is. Of course it is. But we must understand that our own life can take confusing twists and turns. That is the confusion the disciples themselves must understood. Again, I remind you, they left out all. They, they, they were all in. They were fully invested. And now all of a sudden, this confusing information is starting to shape reality. Well, we can move right along rather quickly here. And in 19 and 20, I want to see, I want you to see the transformation that happens within the disciples as it starts making sense to them. And Jesus, it starts out with Jesus knew. Cause they're like, Hey, what's going on? We don't understand. But the text tells us that they didn't actually ask Jesus to explain this to them. And I find that a little, little uh, fascinating. And again, I don't want to um, overanalyze anything, which my wife of 33 years tells me that I... That 33 years, right? So, 30, yeah, 33. so my wife of 33 years, I didn't want to overanalyze that. So she tells me that I overanalyze everything. So I don't want to do that here this morning, but, but I, do, I do want to pound on this a little bit here this morning, that Jesus knew that they asked him a question. And I just want to focus in on the Jesus knew. I mean, do you believe Jesus knows? I mean, those confusions that come into your life, those monkey wrenches, if you will, I think we're allowed to say that, that, that happened in your life. Jesus knew that was coming. And in that, there must be some hope. In that, there must be some joy. In that, there must be some comfort. And and I just want to work on that just a little bit. This idea that from grief to turn to joy, we must understand a few things. The first thing I already talked about, and that is that is predetermined plan of God. I mean, we must, we must rest that within our soul, knowing that it's the predetermined plan of God. This was no accident for Jesus. This is no, your life also is no accident. And the second thing here, here is Jesus knows our questions. Jesus knows our confusions. Jesus, as the theologians would call it, an attribute of God, the omniscience of Jesus, right? The all-knowing. Not only is Jesus omnipotent, all-powerful, but he's also omniscient. He's also all-knowing. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, For the eyes of Yahweh move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support. 
Listen to these words. That he may strongly support those who, what? Those whose heart is completely, completely on his. And we could also talk about Job, but I'll skip ahead to Psalm chapter 33, where the psalmist writes this, Yahweh looks from heaven, and he sees all the sons and daughters of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on the inhabitants of the earth. This is the God we serve. This is the God where our hope and our joy and our life rests upon. Flipping over to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 4, 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things, all things are hidden, are open and laid bare to his eyes of him whom we have to do. And I could go on and on and on as I have here in my notes, but I'll spare you. You get it and you understand. When you follow that thread throughout the biblical text, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, we will find this idea of the omniscience of God, that God knows, that God knows. And as we were building to this idea of grief to hope, this is one of the foundational keys that we must have to have this type of joy. Knowing that, that, the, that, that God knows it's a, it's a planned out from the beginning and that God knows everything that is going on. <clears throat> and that, that's what we must understand here. And so this holds true today. Right? I mean, cause, or, or I'm sorry, third here, um, I got ahead of myself here. Third, third thing we must understand is, is that there, there will be weeping and that there will be lamenting. And this idea of weeping and lamenting, uh, this is a, this is a very, uh, I mean, it comes from the innards of, of our very inner being, this groaning and this weeping and this lamenting that is before us. We've probably experienced some of that to some degree. I would be, probably safe to say every single one of us at one time or another. But what Jesus is saying here, what we lament, what we grieve, the world rejoices. The world rejoices. So so this is personal, and this is also corporately, right? And so personally, there's some things that can happen to our life that can cause us to grieve and weep. And I wouldn't say that the world would necessarily rejoice over some of those things that happen into our life. But corporately, I think we can see it. And even as we look at our nation, and even as we look at the the direction that we seem to be hearing, things the world celebrates, the church grieves and weeps over. The things that the church, that the world is rejoicing and celebrating, the confusion that seems to be out there is celebrated. In the church, we must, we must weep and we must lament as we see the direction, as we see the, 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 the wasteful lives and the way that abortion for one is celebrated. The church must indeed grieve those things. But the disciples grieved. In verse 20, the disciples grieved, it says. You will grieve. But Jesus says, your grief will be turned to joy. Your grief will be turned to joy. Now, what, what can he, he mean here? Well, obviously, he's talking about the resurrection, his resurrection or his return. But I want to jump to the end of the Gospel of John just for a minute. I had a guy, he used to re- like to read books. Well, he wasn't much of a reader, but he would read the end, the last chapter first. And he said, well, why do you do that? He said, well, I want to see if I'm going to like the ending or not. If I don't like the ending, I said, why waste my time reading the book? Um, so whatever, I don't know, I, whatever, anyways. Um, 
That should probably be stricken from the record. Um, but John, that's not me, by the way. That was not me. Um, John chapter 20 in verses uh, 19 and 20. So when it was evening, the first day of the week, Sunday, this is why we come together and gather on a Sunday morning. This is the day of the resurrection. So the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, the disciples, for fear of the Jews, so they locked themselves in that room, Jesus came and stood in their midst. First time they seen him, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. Then what? The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. See, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about. This was the peace. This was the joy that was coming over them here in John chapter 20. This is what Jesus is referring to. This is what is going to happen. See, often we cannot fully realize or fully acknowledge the joy until, until after the fact. And that's what we see here with the disciples. Well, uh, let's get on with it. So verses 21 and 22, we want to look at the comparison. The comparison or the analogy whatever you want to use, word you want to use there, uh, that Jesus brings for the birth of a child. Now, I have not experienced the birth of a child, um, but evidently, it used to be painful. Um, I suppose it still is. Well, they have met it. Never mind. I'll get myself in trouble there. Um, I remember the birth of my child. And I tell you what, ladies, that's, I mean, that's miraculous. And Jesus is using this analogy here for the grief and for what that grief then will turn to. And I want to kind of maybe back into where I'm going here. And so I want to go to Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, the last chapter of Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes is written by a man who the world would consider to have absolutely everything, right? I mean, what does the world say you need? You need power, you need money, and you need women. <laughs> he had that. He had that, and, and yet he comes to the end of that chapter and he says the conclusion, when all has been heard, this is what's important. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, remember, keep that in context of grieving and joy. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And this humbly here, this idea of humbly is circumspectly, right? So it's just meaning to live cautiously, pay attention, be sober-minded, look around, be careful as we walk, as you walk with your God. And to do this, to walk humbly, have humility, is to see the vastness is how I interpret this, is see the vastness in the minuteness, right? To see the vastness in the small. I, um, I want to read a quote here from John Murr. And I don't know how many of you know who John Murr is, probably many. He was a, anyways, you probably know who he is, but he wrote this, he wrote a lot of different books on nature. And, and sometimes when I can't get to the mountains, the mountains are calling, I must go. Maybe you've heard that quote. It comes from him. Uh, that I, so I'd like to read some of his writings. And in Wilderness Wanderings uh, that he wrote down, I, I found something that I really liked and I didn't get past this. But, but maybe your response will be very similar to Cheryl's response 
when I sent her a screenshot of this very quote. And her response was okay in text form. But it wasn't spelled O-K-A-Y, right? She doesn't know how to spell. She spelled it O-O-O-K-K-K-A-A-A-Y-Y-Y. The only thing that was missing was the eye roll emoji, right? That was her response to this. Well, well, maybe your response will be more like mine, and it'll bring a tear to your eye. But this is the quote. And this is what he has to say. Now, he was writing a long time ago, so some of his words are a bit interesting, but he says this. I wish to say a word, context and nature, I wish to say a word for the great central plain of California in general. And for the 20 Hill Hollow in in Merced County in particular. Because in reading descriptions of California scenery by the literary racers, by those who write about such a thing, who annually make a trial of their speed here, he's being a bit sarcastic, one is led to fancy that outside the touristical seesaw of Yosemite, the geysers and the big trees, our state contains little else worthy of note, excepting vineyards. Wine cellars, perhaps. And that our great plain of California is a sort of Sahara, whose narrowest and least dusty crossings, they benevolently white lighthouse. And then he continues, but for the few travelers who are earnest, true lovers of truth and beauty of wilderness, we would say, and I would be here, we would say, heed nothing you have heard. Put no questions to agent or or travel agent or guidebook or dearest friend. Cast away your watches or almanacs that tell you what the weather's all about and go at once to our garden wilds. The more planless, no plan, the more planless and ignorant, the better. Drift away confidently into the broad gulf streams of nature, helmed only by instinct. No harsh storm, no bear, no snake will harm you. Those who submissively allow themselves to be packed and brined down into the sweats of a stagecoach or tour bus, who are hurled into Yosemite by favorite routes or tourist attractions, are not aware that they are crossing a grander Yosemite than that to which they are going. Now, I can only speak for myself. But why did this quote resonate with me? Well, maybe it's because of my relationship with creation. Maybe it's just where I find my soul. Or maybe we can get so wrapped up, right, in the events of our vacations that we can miss out. You know, I remember when our girls were little and we made our annual pilgrimage to Siesta Key to to, uh, Sarasota, Florida. And um, I I was a very busy man in those days, and my schedule was packed. I had no control over my schedule, none. Uh, Everybody controlled my schedule, and it was 15 hours a day at least. And when I went on that vacation, all I wanted to do was nothing. (laughs) Absolutely. The last thing I wanted to do was to be handed a schedule before that vacation. This is what we are going to do. That was my wife. 
She had it all mapped out, and she wanted to jam everything into that week at the beach she possibly could. And so we differed a bit. And I get it, and I understand. But sometimes, right? Sometimes I believe that this also applies to the broader narrative of life. We want a life of purpose, a life of fulfillment, and I get it and I understand that. That we don't give proper definition to purpose and fulfillment that we actually miss out. You see, so many run towards the vastness that they fail to see the creation of wonder in the minuscule. So many fear storms, so many fear bears, so many fear snakes that they fail to enter into adventure. So many run to seek mountaintop experiences. They fail to learn from the plainness of the desert. Until you've been to the desert, you cannot truly be in awe of the mountain vistas. I don't believe that. Back to verse 21 and having babies. Verse 21, Jesus agrees with me. I'm pretty sure, certain. Because Jesus says whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the pain. She no longer remembers the anguish. I'm not sure that's totally true, but nonetheless, you overlook it because of the joy of this child. That's what Jesus is talking about, our, re- our grief and our joy. The pain of childbirth doesn't stop a woman from embracing their pain. Why? Because the pain, although not wanted, leads to the cry of an infant child brought forth into this world, made up of her very own flesh and blood. Right? That's the analogy, that, that's the comparison Jesus is making. And then he ends up with verse 22, Therefore, disciples, therefore you who are currently grieving, I will see you again. Your grief will turn to joy, and your joy will not be taken away from you. Storms of life, the bears of life, the snakes of life are very real. All can inflict very real pain, and all can inflict very real death. But none can take away the joy that you have in Christ. That's what I want you to understand. Joy is not a facade. This is not a joy that is conjured up by manipulation. This is joy brought forth by the fruit of the Spirit that can only be understood and realized through the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I don't know if Mr. Murr had Romans 8 in mind or not when he wrote that. It certainly led my mind in to Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to evaluate happiness. We need to evaluate hope. We need to evaluate joy and see it through Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, Verses 1 to 3. We love Hebrews 11, right? We love to see the examples of the faith chapter. But Hebrews 12 starts out like with a therefore. Therefore, since we have such a great crowd of witnesses 
surrounding us. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with the doors to race that set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured in the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that, this is again the point that's being made, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is not speaking of a happiness dependent upon your situation. This is speaking of a joy despite your situation. Romans 15 tells us that now may the God of hope, now may the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope in the power of the Spirit, of the Spirit. You see, my friends, I am afraid that we confuse happiness with joy. I am afraid that we confuse our situation, the things that we have, how we experience this life with joy. And that's not exactly at all what Jesus is talking about here. The truth that comes in Christ is a joy that is fills us, that is despite the situations that we find ourselves in. And just as the analogy of childbirth, Jesus is saying, it is actually through the grief. It is actually through the trials of life. It is actually through the losses of life. It is actually through the things, our plan that falls together. And we acknowledge that God is in control, that God knows it all, that we can truly experience true joy. And, and Jesus says that if you do that, if you do that, then you can pray to me and ask anything. Now, obviously, anything needs a qualifier. I don't need to put it out there. You already know that. But when that's the mindset that you have, then you will ask according to the character according to the nature of Jesus. And it's not Jesus, it's not Father, make my life joyful and happy and give me all these things, though we want those things. But it's like, God, take my life and let it be. Take my life and whatever you do with it for your honor and for your glory in the name of Jesus, according to Jesus. And when we do that, my friends, when we do that and put our and reevaluate the things we call grief, reevaluate the things that we call happiness in the context of Scripture, then, then true, lasting joy that no one or no situation can ever take away from us. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for your joy. I thank you for your example. Father, I thank you for my own life as I look at things that I certainly would call things to sorrow, things to grieve. And yet as I reflect back, Lord, I see how you are working in that on purpose and for a purpose. And so I thank you for that. Father, I, I pray that each one of us, as we maybe reflect upon something that was said here this morning, that it would cause us to turn, cause us to evaluate those things that the world wants to tell us we must have to be happy when actually it's just not at all true. And so, Father, I pray that as you help us, as you help us to go through next week, as you go through life, as we go through the, through, through the prudent thing of planning out and mapping out our life, 
Oh, Father, we will hold that loosely and allow you to adjust and make it shape in a way uh, that would bring you maximum honor and glory. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.